Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kaligan. We're coming at you in our 52nd episode amidst another week of the Third World War, and here we are discussing some insane palace intrigue going on in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Israel, uh, some crazy things going on in some lesser-known fronts, perhaps talking about Myanmar and other places like that. Of course, Xi Jinping, he came to America for the first time in a hot minute, and of course, the war in Gaza, it rages on. So, we're going to be talking about all of that, January 6th footage released, all sorts of things all across, you know, God's green earth. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. And yes, it's another week of very extensive diplomacy, I think, from various different countries around the world, I would say. And naturally, the US, you know, for the first time, uh, inviting another world leader to its, uh, you know, to its home ground, essentially, since I would say it's, it's been a little while since a, a leader of an upcoming world power, like a fellow hegemon has visited. But before we go into that particular diplomatic story, I think we need to return back to Gaza and Israel, which is probably the hot news at the moment. Naturally, the the war rages on. Israeli tanks are pushing into the in, inner cities of Gaza City itself. So frankly, all the suburbs are being uh, you know, slowly but surely occupied by the Israeli IDF. The losses continue to mount. We've seen for the first time, I think, HD images, which cannot be excused as Photoshop or images from past wars because they're clearly HD of Merkava tanks essentially jammed into streets, destroyed by, uh, you know, probably Palestinian Hamas RPGs, it seems. So, you know, we do see a lot of Israeli tech actually thrown about, destroyed. Perhaps the Hamas losses we spoke about last week with 150, um, you know, not the Hamas losses, but the Israeli losses that Hamas has essentially destroyed and caused. Uh, perhaps it hasn't been exaggerated because the footage we're seeing is actually, it cannot be faked. And in fact, it's it's about as brutal as what we saw at the beginning of the Ukrainian war where you did see Russian tanks essentially trashed along the roads. That sort of footage is quite abundant online now. And of course, naturally, the lack of internet, again, is really stifling any information we are getting. In terms of losses, again, we're saying the loss of life for the Palestinian for the Palestinians is, has increased to just over 12,000 today on the 17th of November. So again, it's looking uh, pretty bad on that and not really slowing down, except the world, it seems, is uniting, including in Israel itself. There is a growing opposition. So people are not very, uh, you know, they're not very happy with the way Netanyahu has handled himself throughout this particular campaign. And in fact, the slow, the slow strategy that the Mossad agents and the spokespersons for Israel spoke about last week, where they're going to take a slow approach towards the dehamasization of, of the Gaza Strip, is perhaps not the correct strategy for the Netanyahu um, secular Sanhedrin council. Yeah, I mean, Netanyahu's facing pressure from multiple directions. Of course, I think you have the U.S. trying to boost Benny Gantz and the opposition to have them get into power whenever elections come about, whenever this crisis, I guess, gives way to that kind of political pressure reality to hold such an election, which Netanyahu, of course, will resist, as well as what appears to be hardline resistance within his own party from in Likud, from people like Yair Lapid and Itamar Ben-Gavir, who... You know, they were going on, they are voting for total Israeli occupation of Gaza, supposedly. These are leaks. Again, we got to think about this from an information warfare perspective. But, you know, Yair Lapid has called for a new Likud prime minister as opposed to Netanyahu. So, you know, this guy, whether he's, I don't know whether he's playing this from both sides or if it's just really over for him, but it's it's very much all, all coming, falling down, I guess you could say. But at the same time, we, we see the uh, Islamic, uh, or what is it called? The Islamic Organization of Cooperation holding one of their summits. And this is basically the biggest diplomatic display of unity the Islamic world has shown in my memory, my living memory. We see Raisi and MBS meeting in Riyadh. We see Erdogan and Assad present at the same council. 
again, this is right after Assad's readmission into the Arab League, and he's, you know, shaking hands with Mohammed bin Salman and Saudi representatives. These kind of images would be unthinkable just a year ago. But now, in the midst of this craziness going on in Gaza and the Holy Land, we have we are seeing unprecedented levels of of Islamic unity. And despite the fact that Israel continues to take these massive losses, and obviously Hamas, the the civilian casualties are mounting, while simultaneously the the death count on October 7th seems to go down. Every time people look into it, it gets revised, and less people, I guess, were killed. So, you know, despite that, the death count in civilian children death count continues to rise in, in Gaza. The West Bank, as well, continues to escalate. There's been more and more operations with with missiles and with tanks and with larger, large, larger and larger battalions of troops deployed to the West Bank. And, of course, the Northern Front. I mean, Hezbollah has kept up their missile strikes, despite the fact that Iran basically told the leader of Hamas that we will not be assisting you against Israel because you didn't give us a warning about your attack on October 7th. Uh, that doesn't necessarily carry over to Hezbollah, who have been, you know, handling this in their own regard. And the, the strikes on Lebanese territory have gotten more intense from Israel, and then the strikes back into Israel have gotten more intense from Hezbollah. So while Iran may not be in this for Hamas, if this escalates in the north, Iran's, you know, Iran's uh, move is entirely unpredictable. So there's that. And of course, the pictures of MBS and Raisi in Iran, I mean, this is their first meeting. I mean, in Riyadh is their first meeting since the Beijing brokered, you know, rapprochement between the two countries. And again, that seems to have been solidified with this conference while the supposed oncoming Saudi rapprochement is completely dead in the water. The Saudis have been having to stifle rumors that they're playing up their support for the Palestinians, for the cameras, despite wanting secretly to, you know, negotiate and re, you know, revamp uh, rapprochement with the Israelis. It seems that they're facing enough pressure from their people and the international Muslim community to have to totally deny that. Be like, no, no, they have to really be assuring the Palestinians that they're in this for them. So this shows you that you know Israel has really lost the the information war on this. And of course, this translates to we're going to talk about the info war coming home to America in a little bit. But Hamas, they continue to fight in Gaza, and I don't know how many areas they have. Of course, the Israeli military keeps trying to prove that the Al-Shifa hospital is a Hamas base, and the evidence just falls flat on its face. They're posted like, here's three grenades and a Quran, and it's like, all right, man, you got him. You got him, man. That was definitely worth bombing the hospital. But the evidence keeps falling flat from the Israeli side, but at the same time, Hamas, I mean, there's still videos of them using RPGs. The tanks keep getting blown up. Obviously, it seems that the Israelis do want to eventually push into South Gaza, and we keep seeing huge satellite images of massive hordes of people from Gaza just trying to flee south. But again, until we see something happen on that Rafah crossing, which we know Israel and Jordan, they're all against taking these people, it's really anybody's guess what's going to happen, whether hundreds of thousands will die, whether people will get displaced, whether they come to the west. It's all, all these things are on the table at this point. And a lot of this stuff, I'm sure, was discussed at the IOC, which, again, Erdogan, Assad, all these people, this was this was truly unprecedented. Yeah, that's right. I think if you look at all the countries present, you'll see so many contradictions on an ethnic, geographical, national, as well as religious level. So you have Shias, Sunnis, Wahhabis, you know, people, essentially Saudi Arabia, which is essentially the, the forerunner and the creator of the Wahhabi, Salafi ideology, which essentially, um, you know, you can say even gave birth to some of this Islamic radicalism we saw in southern Russia for the longest time in the 1990s and other places. So essentially, all these countries come in together in order to discuss a common issue of the Palestinians. And in fact, 
I think the beauty of this union is that they're doing it and they're coming together speaking without asking for permission from either the EU, without asking for permission from China, from the Security Council of the UN, or in, mainly from the US, right? It's all these, the, the Muslim countries are in fact uniting around the common cause and in fact setting aside the differences in order to actually find some benefit, I think, for themselves. And frankly, it's Probably one of the first times since I would say the 1960s, maybe 1970s, since OPEC united, united in uh, during the Israeli wars against the the Arab countries, where we could see this Middle Eastern unity, which we haven't seen for about a hundred years since World War One and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So it, it is a little bit surprising and, fr frankly, shocking to see that all these countries can come together despite the you know literal differences and even the, um, I would say wartime participation. So you had Saudi Arabia completely ignore Assad's plight during the looting and destruction that ISIS has wrought, as well as you know, all these various rebel groups who stood up against Assad and have essentially plundered his country, destroyed almost half of it, and if not for the Russian intervention, would have most likely taken him out in Damascus. And you have, again, Turkey, Erdogan, who only recently in 2023, and you know, we discussed in previous episodes, have actually directly bombarded some of Assad's forces and bases. So again, they're all coming together in order to solidify a position here against the Zionist powers and against the US dominance. And, and I think it's kind of falling short. It's really falling short on the end of the US. Like, how can the US do what maybe Trump did in 2017 and towards the end of his presidency. Like Joe Biden does not have the particular influence in order to somehow foster a deal with the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. It's simply, we're not going to see a reaction to this, you know, union of Islamic nations. And naturally, like we have to just keep in mind, are these Islamic nations going to, is this coalition, right? Is it going to be for some sort of military confrontation with the Israelis? Most likely not, given all the tight alliances and the knots built between these countries and the relations there. I think what we're going to most likely see is a prolonged legalistic approach through the um, International Court of Justice, I would say. So it's, it's targeting certain Israeli politicians, certain Zionist spokespersons, and notwithstanding, most likely Netanyahu himself. And these Muslim countries will take these people to court internationally and use the international law, which has been used against Muslim nations for ma many decades on end. They're finally going to use this weapon of international affairs against its own creators, I would say, which I think is exciting. And most likely, I think countries like China and Putin are watching very closely to see exactly what will come of this particular union in the Middle East. But generally, this is good news for the Palestinians who may finally find the support that they were looking for from the, I guess, not international community, but from more importantly, the regional Islamic community, which is for the most part, not kept silent, but really hasn't palpably assisted them in any meaningful way. Yeah, of course, we see the three heads of, I don't know what you want to call it, the Hydra, you know, vying, who are the people vying for control over the caliphate, you know, again, this region of the world from Pakistan all the way to uh, Western Turkey, this is an Islamic belt. And, you know, the three powers kind of vying f for leadership, you have the Turks and Erdogan, you have the Saudis, the, the, the House of Saud, and, you know, those in Riyadh, and then you have Tehran and the Iranians. Of course, Pakistan is a large power, but they're more caught up with their civilizational war with India. The These three civilizational groups are kind of those that seek to, at any given moment, kind of define themselves as a leader in the Islamic world, and they each have their own spin on it, you know, ethno-linguistically as well. Of course, we know Turkey and Iran are much more militarily powerful than Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia does enjoy support from the United States, as well as Mecca and Medina are in Saudi Arabia, so every Muslim, in theory, will have to go there at some point in their life. And at the same time, though, you know, thinking about this militarily for years, you know, Saudi Arabia versus Iran was one of the main, you know, dividing points in the Middle East that the U.S. was exploiting. And the U.S., you know, Saudi Arabia really needed the U.S. because at any moment, Iran could just totally destroy Saudi Arabia without the backing of a larger power. I mean, the Houthi, the Iranian-backed Houthis destroyed 
the Saudis and their proxies and their unlimited American weapons for years. So I think it's pretty obvious that Iran proper would be able to do some serious damage. But it seemed to all be love at this conference. So it just shows you the unifying factor and really just how sick these broader powers are of the of the unipolar moment and the moralizing. And a lot of that has to do with this, you know, this double standard from these Zionists in the West that it's it's always boo-hoo victim narrative about, you know, the Jewish struggle throughout history, but then suddenly, you know, it's time to bomb Gaza and all of these sorts of things. And they're like, well, we have power. Of course, you know, the Emir of Qatar was there as well, considered the most powerful Muslim in the world, very influential in, in Qatar, of course. I believe the Emir of Bahrain was there as well, but notably not there were the Emirs of uh, Dubai or Abu Dhabi. And so the Emirates, you know, the UAE members, they seem to really have thrown their head in with Israel. And of course, is it any surprise? I mean, Dubai is really just a, it's like this random Western outpost at this point. It's its not a, sure, people talk about the rules there and the Islamization and everything, but it seems that they have very much allied with the West and even with Israel at this point, which is, I don't, I guess we aren't going to see as many protests. They, they deduce that their people wouldn't hold them as accountable as in some of these other countries. So it's pretty interesting to say the least, but Unless you have anything else to say about that conference, Dimitri, of course. Jordan, the they were there as well, all of the Lebanese leaders, of course. So it really was pan-Islamic. Yeah, I think I just wanted to mention quickly Erdogan, you know, being the powerful wolf that he that he is, you know, seeing his ally Azerbaijan defeat Armenia and also just winning the election, you know, by just the just the hair winning that election, you know, somehow, you know, not not sort of getting taken out by whatever illness, whatever mysterious illness sort of ailed him earlier this year. And again, you know, escalating the rhetoric against Israel is just very powerful on his end. A few days ago, he called Israel for the first time. And it's the first time since I think, I believe Iran, that a leader of an Islamic, Islamic country has called uh, Israel a terrorist state. So Erdogan actually doing that actively. Now, naturally, you have to take this into account. Like it is, it is simply rhetoric, given the fact that Turkey continues to, of course, provide shipments through its allies, Azerbaijan, uh, shipments of oil as well as gas to Israel. These uh, energy exports continue sort of unabated. But so we do have to consider the fact that, well, Erdogan's rhetoric, as strong as it is, will it have any palpable effect given the fact that Turkey is still one of its closest allies is the US. Turkey is still part of that NATO coalition. And in fact, that union, I think, solidifies their foreign interest in order to not oppose what the US deems as its closest ally in the Middle East. So I think Erdogan has his hands tied a little bit, in, but he does need to cater to the the populace of his country to some extent. So I think the rhetoric is stronger, but you know it's similar to I would say what Putin stated at the Valdai conference. You know he was questioned by some of the Russian economists quite actively, like why Putin are you still supplying gas to these European countries and this gas these pipelines are going through Ukraine. Essentially, Ukraine is siphoning some of the gas over and also using it, and it's using some of that Russian energy, these Russian fossil fuels, in order to fund their forces and them their military and. Putin's uh, expression was simply that, well, we have to abide by the contracts which we signed and we don't break our contracts as Russians. We have to stay, you know, keep to our word. And I think Erdogan most likely could use that same excuse, similar to Putin, if asked, well, why are you supplying Israel with gas and oil? Well, it's like, well, we have to kind of stick by our agreements in the past. But funnily enough, Israel does have plans, I think, for the, you know, speaking of energy, right, Conrad, there, there are some probably large considerations for the massive oil field just to the coast off of Israel. And, you know, <laughs> eschatological 
geographically speaking, that oil field's name is Leviathan. So the Leviathan gas field, which it has, it's really interesting because there's a layer of gas deposits underneath that. There are, of course, accrued oil deposits as well. So it's it's essentially very, very enriching for the Eastern Mediterranean. So Israel taking the Gaza Strip may have multiple sort of uses there, essentially clearing out that Israeli coastline for any sort of uh, futuristic, um, I would say, energy exploitation on that end. But nevertheless, the Middle East you know, continues to continues to so, sort of boil. And I think that's the main conclusion we can kind of come to from gathering this news in the week. But uh, some of the difference in positions from some of these major Islamic countries, I think it brings about an, an exciting sort of turn of events. Finally, we're seeing some unity. And finally, we're seeing Israel Israel internally somewhat crumble. You know, we've seen three, four weeks of you know union around Netanyahu and his sort of militaristic, you can say, Zionist dictatorial force. And finally, they're, they're claiming that, well, maybe... It wasn't very wise giving Netanyahu all of these prerogatives and all these powers, which he may even abuse going into the future. Yeah, and again, the the, the situation in Gaza, off the, I believe that oil field you talked about is right off the coast of Gaza itself. So there's always people discussing that motivation behind Israel, how they really do need to secure some kind of beachhead on that. Literally that tiny little strip, they still need it. They just, <laughs> they just can't get enough. So it, it really, there's all sorts of angles to this, of course. And yeah, we saw all of the leaders at this conference talking just announced this usual denunciations against the hospital bombings and everything expressing their solidarity with Mahmoud Abbas you know the president of the Palestinian Authority but the the info war is really almost more interestingly being fought on X specifically in the West I mean we saw some insane things happening there today and of course I mean today the past few days the past week and this is all on the, on the heels of ban the ADL and the latest I mean people like Lucas Gage people like Keith Woods have gained you know up a hundred thousand plus followers in the midst of this huge awakening on, you know, the Israel-Palestine stuff. And, and of course, Elon Musk is, he seems to be, I mean, for lack of a better word, just getting completely and utterly red-pilled. I mean, he's, he's, he's replying, let me find the tweet here. He's replying to some pretty spicy stuff. And of course, if you want to hear a fuller discussion of this, listen to our latest uh, episode of Ether Hour with Anthony of Westgate. We'll have that linked below, really good stuff. So get behind the paywall for that. You heard it here. But this is a tweet that says, it's in the context of, you know, Jewish power, I guess, being discussed on X. And he says, okay, Jewish communities have been pushing the exact same kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. I'm deeply disinterested in giving the tiniest S-word now about Western Jewish populations coming to the disturbing realization that those hordes of minorities that's, that they supported flooding their countries don't exactly like them too much. You want the truth said to your face? There it is. And Elon Musk replied to this, you have said the actual truth. And this erupted a firestorm on Twitter as of now. We've seen Apple, IBM, the European Commission, all sorts of groups, Disney, uh, completely pulled their advertising from X. And of course, X, we know, has already been devalued by all sorts of ADL-led boycotts and whatnot. And in response, you know, Elon has quickly decided to ban all calls for genocide, which includes from the river to the sea, which I don't think I've ever tweeted out, so I'm not in any danger. But that will definitely ban a lot of Palestinian people that are definitely not calling for genocide, but are just using it as a, you know, a sort of statement of national sovereignty and a reassertion of what they consider their borders. But even even from the perspective of certain agreed upon international treaties, but obviously there are also statements. I mean, you could see how it could be interpreted in that way in some regard, of course. But I think, I think again, this is just a step backwards for free speech on the platform. But I'm not complaining. I think. The, the general victory has been won. And in general, I mean, Ben Shapiro is getting completely ratioed. Listen to that episode. We talk about the Candace Owens affair where Candace Owens seems, I mean, she's now interviewed Norman Finkelstein, who's a very famous anti-Israel, anti-Zionist sort of intellectual who is really, you know, you see his refutations of Alan Dershowitz and other scummy Zionists. He's 
He does good work. And, you know, honestly impressed with Jeremy Boring, who recently said that he wouldn't be firing Candace Owens and that if he ever did, it would have nothing to do with her political statements. So I'm a little bit impressed with the Daily Wire. It seems that everybody is sensing that I don't necessarily attribute it to their sincerity. I attribute it to the fact that they're aware of the 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 tide the shifting tides and how if they canceled them and that Candace in that regard, so many people would see through it and they might actually start to lose money on the platform. And we see Matt Walsh also calling out a double standard on Israel. Of course, Candace Owens called for Nikki Haley to run for president of Israel. Matt Walsh said it's like a sickness that people think that we just need to do everything for Israel. So everybody is definitely, it's just became too obvious to deny at a certain level. And interesting things are happening. Of course, we saw Jake Tapper posting about this, you know, disgusted at Elon Musk's anti-Semitism. But the screenshot he posted was showed that it was retweeted by Autumn Groiper. So I find it interesting that I guess Jake Tapper was following Autumn Groiper. But, you know, it seems that uh, certain people, you know, you can in many ways include ourselves. We've been on the internet fighting the good fight for a while. I, was, I wasn't always publicly doing it, but I've been on here. And it seems that what used to have to be said in the shadows is now being said quite openly. Yeah, I think recently it's just been a complete vindication of the America first position, the American conservative Christian position on Israel, on you know American foreign policy, on, I guess, the, the state of the question, you can say, the question of certain influential groups, them boys, if you may, who act within American society, turning it against against its initial Christian values, which it was founded upon. You know, regardless of what your view is of the founding fathers, you can say very aptly that prior to, say, the 1960s, prior to the 1950s, uh, 1970s, America was you can say very conservative in its Christian outlook on life. And then something's certainly changed around certain elites came into the fold, maybe certain immigration groups from Europe, but definitely things have changed in America. And, and now finally people are beginning to notice. And as you mentioned, some of those figures, Matt Walsh, et cetera, and I think even figures which we haven't really expected to speak out quite openly, you know, Elon Musk, naturally Charlie Kirk, Tucker Carlson, these really powerful conservative sp- spokespersons who me and Conrad don't necessarily agree with them on everything. And none of them are necessarily Orthodox Christian, but they are Protestants and they all sort of, they do have this veneer of being conservative Christians online. So none of them claim to be atheists. None of them claim to be uh, Jewish by by religion, except Ben Shapiro. So even Jeremy Boring, you know, besides having like, I guess, ethnically being Jewish, he does have an affiliation with some Christian denomination of Protestantism. So in fact, you know, most of these figures online, they do have to somehow back up Candace Owens' claims. And funny enough, Candace Owens, you know, I wish her good health because she is going into, into her maternity leave soon from daily wire and literally legally speaking she's completely protected from being fired for almost uh, any particular pretext legally you know just just as she's about to go into maternity leave to the uh discrimination laws in the u.s i think will prevent her from being you know ousted out of daily wire so her timing on these comments is just apt like it's very very well-timed i think it's, it's really clever to use the laws against you know you could say very openly talmudic scholars scholars i think that's a uh, quite ironic and you know quite comedic so definitely a, a victory and naturally i think i'm a bit less pessimistic conrad on the entire you know i did see elon musk's comments about the adl today and he's just trying to shuffle back and state that look we're against all kinds of hate speech we're going to be banning people and you know people who call for from the river to the sea which is i think a little bit vague it is so sort of like a political slogan which could almost apply to any sort of country including ukraine like it doesn't necessarily even apply to palestine and <laughs> kicking out the jews you can sort of copy paste it to any african country from from the river to the, the coast of the sea. ethiopians can even use it themselves but i think naturally the question is about enforcement and now that twitter has maybe one eighth of the staff pool can they really filter out all these comments like i mean we've been seeing some pretty open statements being made by certain twitter users you know calling out naming them 
you know, even Christians quoting saints such as Saint John Chrysostom very openly, and you know, speaking about certain documents being published in the past. I think it's quite obvious that finally the the Overton window, as cliche as it may sound, has somewhat shifted. And like, I'm not a complete you know believer in that particular theory as being some sort of being very definitive for political philosophy in the world, but I think. There is a perspective for the masses, for the majority of people using, consuming information that once the perspective shifts slightly and finally you open up this new window that maybe they can look into, perhaps they will see a sort of sliver of truth in the world and a sliver of truth in, you know, they'll see maybe a perspective that they haven't really noticed before. But for us Christians, naturally, none of this is new news. You can say it's all quite old and maybe even somewhat boring, but I think nevertheless, very exciting and positive. I think definitely Orthodox Christianity will benefit from this greatly, considering that our primary enemies right now are these particular people, especially in their golem-run Ukrainian state, which, you know, me and Conrad keep mentioning on our A for Hour episodes very explicitly in an unfiltered, uncensored format. But here as well, I think it's very clear that they're using... They're all the power that they have, all the money and all the wealth and all the energy of the American people themselves, you know, using this military industrial complex to negatively impact orthodoxy. So if we can get the world and even uh, our brothers and sisters, you know, from other denominations of Christianity to side with us on this particular issue, I think it's it'll benefit the church, uh, you know, in a sort of material sense and, in, in, you know, going forward, at least in the short term. Yeah, I totally agree. And when it comes to, you talk about, you know, the Overton window or whatever, sure, when it comes to logical debate, when it comes to actually ex- discussing ideas, appeal to the masses, you know, ad populum, appeal to, you know, I guess the larger audience having accepted an opinion is obviously a fallacy. But when it comes to a taboo and enforcing a taboo, that's all that matters, right? Like, the more and more people reject the taboo as taboo, then the taboo isn't a taboo anymore. And of course, I think we're starting to reach that critical mass that you know, people have kind of discussed for a long time that eventually it, it's just not going to be, the, you know, the social shame tactics aren't going to be as effective anymore and shutting people that are bringing these ideas to the forefront down. And eventually the ideas are just going to be allowed to exist in the, you know, in the in the debate space and are going to then therefore win because they're correct. And that's that's a very exciting moment for those of us who have been, you know, look, we accepted, we were just going to be, we would scream out to our, you know, few thousand subscribers here on Substack for as long as it took, you know. It didn't necessarily need to go as mainstream as it is, but here we are. So we're glad to have, you know, gotten on that wave before it was before it was cool, many might say. But unless you have anything else to say about kind of this mass red pilling, I think we should discuss the emperor himself, Xi Jinping's visit to to the west coast of the United States. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting connection. So the the reigning communist king of the Middle Kingdom has arrived in in to San Francisco. And frankly, when you can when you combine China and San Francisco, the first thing you think about is not communism in my eyes. It's uh, Saint John of San Francisco in Shanghai. <laughs> but <laughs> funny enough, naturally, Xi Jinping did not visit the Orthodox Cathedral in in San Francisco. At least not yet. We will see. Maybe if Orthodoxy does rise in prominence in China. Perhaps Saint John of Shanghai will be visited one day by a leader of an international state. Given that he is one of the great miracle workers of the American continent, and but but that interesting connection was there. But yes, Xi Jinping, the uh, you can say the president, the chairman of the Chinese People's Republic, has officially visited America, and he stayed in San Francisco. Gavin Newsom, like the slimy slug that he was, 
definitely cleaned up the streets of San Francisco artificially doing something to all of the drug addicted homeless people, which uh, he left out on the streets for decades on end, threatening the local populace, including the Christians who just want to go to church on Sunday, but they have to, you know, park their cars in special spots in order to be avoided, to avoid vandalism, things like that. And, you know, I have relatives living in San Francisco, so it's, you know, the stories I kind of get from from that city are not very good. But naturally, Gavin Newsom cleaned the streets up for the visit of the great, uh, the great man from China himself. And naturally, <laughs> not just Gavin Newsom, but also Joe Biden naturally met Xi Jinping. And the things they spoke about were just, I mean, off the top of my head. So the three issues they mainly discussed. And one of these may be important. So I'm not going to discount it as completely fictitious and somewhat trivial. So the first issue they discussed was a joint military cooperation and, ex and military exercises between China and the US, which two years ago came to a halt during the COVID crisis. And naturally, now they're being restarted. And, you know, you can kind of say this is yeah probably like a utilitarian, uh, I guess, pragmatic view going forward. The Chinese military is still in its development stages. The US does need to somewhat warm up some of its training tactics, I think, in order to adapt them to the new the new setting. So especially after the troops have left Afghanistan and Iraq. So joint exercise with the Chinese seems like a logical step. The second thing they discussed with Biden was the fentanyl crisis coming in from Mexico. So notice Conrad Tucker Carlson kept speaking about this, especially in his unofficial debates over Twitter and things like that, taking jabs at uh, you know Ben Shapiro, stating that the fentanyl crisis, the drugs that are coming over the Mexican border are typically made of Chinese ingredients. And so this has come to the forefront. Finally, Joe Biden stated, well, the Chinese corporations should manage these ingredients a bit more carefully. They should control exactly to whom they go in Mexico in order for fentanyl not to be produced. And why I say this is not trivial is because, well, the listeners may know somebody in the US who is addicted to this drug. It's similar to heroin. It's quite bad. Um, it really destroys livelihoods and destroys personal you know, people. And I think members of the church would agree that this is actually a real issue. But so I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily say that it's a waste of time that Joe Biden spoke to Xi Jinping about the fentanyl crisis. I think it's a real uh, it's a real issue that many people face, though, that you may know people who have been addicted to it, etc. And, you know, it does kind of ring a bell, kind of, it's, this does remind you of a reverse opium war, in a way, how the Western European countries, the UK, in particular, the British Empire, forced the... Uh, for forced opiates on the on the late I guess Chinese Empire during its dying stages as it was weakened and forced the Chinese state at the time to purchase opium from Afghanistan from India in order to fund its I guess revenue and the Chinese population became addicted to it and now we're seeing a reverse with China's sourcing ingredients into Mexico addicting the white American population you know, in a large part of it, I guess, to fentanyl and all these other degenerate drugs. So I'm not sure if this is somehow maybe a, a plan from China, but Joe Biden nevertheless spoke to Xi Jinping about it. And the third issue is, I think, completely trivial. It's just the export of Chinese pandas to American zoos, which I think is a little bit neither here nor there. As much as we love pandas and bears in general, I think naturally these three subjects are the, what's what the mainstream media has reported that Xi Jinping spoke to Biden about. But I think what, what they really spoke about was most likely Taiwan, most likely the Ukraine issue and, of course, the Middle East and how China and America can find kind of get back on their feet and begin influencing the situation again. Because naturally, it seems like neither Netanyahu nor Zelensky, they've kind of come off the leash. They're not really listening to Xi Jinping. Neither of them are listening to Joe Biden. They're just doing what they want in their local particular administrations and kind of pushing the world into, you can almost say, a World War III, which maybe uh, the old man Biden and Xi Jinping don't really want. So, in fact, poss possibly these two big economic hegemons are trying to coordinate their efforts in order to influence world affairs once again on, on a larger scale. Yeah, of course, we saw Xi Jinping express his desire to maintain dialogue between Washington and Beijing. They opened up military-to-military -military communications again, which had been severed for a long time in wake of the 
Pelosi uh, Taiwan visit and other such disasters, as well as just the growing alliance between China and Russia, as well as Iran and everything going on in the Middle East. But those communication stations were reopened. And of course, the Xi seemed to be very diplomatic, you know, always put together, very well presenting, trying to put on his best show. They, he showed Biden his, you know, fancy Chinese made protector leader car. And, you know, Biden said that was cool, man. But then, of course, moments after, you know, Xi leaves and drives away, Biden can't hold it in. He answers a reporter and says, well, of course, Xi Jinping is a dictator. And you can see on Anthony Blinken's face, he's just dying inside. And he's like, oh, boy, I've got to spend like 18 hours on the phone tonight talking to, you know, all sorts of different wangs and wongs about, you know, why what he really meant and why he you know wasn't in his right mind or whatever it was when he said that. But of course, you know, some reporter obviously trying to catch by Biden was like, oh, of course, you know, he he runs a country different from us, a communist style country, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly Biden sounding like your your boomer con granddad at, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner. But I think I don't know how that's going to affect any kind of act. I mean, again, at the very least, it'll probably make Xi be like, yeah, the words I said were mostly just words. He's going to go right back to, you know, maybe laughing on the phone with Putin about whatever really is or isn't going on. But I mean, at the same time, he's probably dealing with this situation in Myanmar, paying close attention, because this conflict's been kind of lightly boiling under the surface. It's never been as hot as even these flare-ups with Armenia, Azerbaijan, but right now it's getting quite serious. Uh, the Myanmar military, which again is a junta that is largely backed by Russia and China, the junta, they ordered uh, civil servants and veterans to prepare to perhaps enlist and have to fight against many of these rebel forces that are rising up, and again... This is a coalition of multiple different separate forces from different regions and uh, forces who support the U.S.-backed CIA front government of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was the person that was ousted in the coup that installed the junta. And, and the fighting is getting pretty fierce. I mean, we're seeing, you know, 10, 20, 30 people dead in multiple different regions of Myanmar. And I don't know who, I mean, if I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this is weapons coming from Ukraine that got to these groups that they're now able to to utilize properly against the, the junta. And I think while the junta is support, they recently had joint uh, military operations with Russia earlier this year, but I don't know how much they've been able to secure supply lines from China. China is, we know, very slow and reticent to start openly funding certain proxy groups. But of course, this is, uh, Myanmar is a huge country, over 60 million people. And we've seen like 40, 50 groups of these Myanmar soldiers flee to India after being, you know, their stations overrun by these rebel groups. And one of the biggest things that has to go on here is the Rohingya. There was like almost a million Muslims driven out of, you know, this area. Obviously, the Myanmar authorities are very militantly Buddhist and are fairly anti-Islamic in their perspective. And that's a big kind of aspect of this this entire conflict in these regions that want to break away. But a lot of these regions are bordering India near the border with China. And China, of course, wants to maintain stability in the midst of all of this. So I'm sure Xi is watching all this very closely as well. Yeah, that's right. It does it does remind us of a certain like an uh, Arunapal Pradesh type of situation where you have a country which is quite large, but it's also, I mean, a, a lot larger than the formerly mentioned Arunapal Pradesh, but also it's stationed right in between China and India. And naturally, these two rising giants of bricks haven't really, really been seeing eye to eye. And what we've noticed, at least in world affairs recently, has been that, you know, major countries rising up, they've always somehow been involved in conflicts on their borders. So India definitely watching Myanmar and not really getting involved, but eventually the refugee crisis, which will emerge, and, you know, the the news have relayed to us that at least 200,000 people have been displaced at the moment in the Myanmar Myanmar conflict. So essentially, as soon as these rebels inside and essentially these various military groups, which are really well armed, armed to the teeth, essentially, you can't simply 
if you're an, if you're the Indian military, you can't simply get involved in Myanmar and get out safely without sort of risking your own troops here at one point. But as soon as these uh, rebels fight, they take certain villages, you have hundreds and thousands of people displaced. And eventually, these refugees are going to go either south or they're going to go west into India. And naturally, these larger countries will become more involved. So I think China and India, as you mentioned, Xi Jinping, Modi, they're both watching this very, very carefully. And, you know, I don't think they're going to allow any sort of international intervention into this particular state. But again, most likely what we're seeing is just the the outcome of the post-colonial world, right? We're seeing this in the Middle East with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. These European powers essentially run by the Rothschilds, run by the, um, you can say, Zionist banking uh, cartels prior to the prior to World War II. Once they break, break away and they leave these countries, they leave them in a state of complete disunity, disrepair, and naturally this social ethnic tensions begin, of course, rising up to the forefront. And so we're seeing this in Myanmar now, of course, hundreds of thousands of people are going to most likely going to be killed once, you know, before all of this is put to an end, given the fact the, that it seems that most of the movements within the country itself, like the, the political differences are very, very stark. And it doesn't seem like there's a uniting force here. Like religiously speaking, there's Protestants involved here, Buddhists, some Islamic movements as well. But naturally, the, the disunity, I think, is what gives this a very dire sort of view, at least from objectively now that it's heating up again this year. Uh, and it's looking quite bad, I think, for the civilian population. So I guess the, the onus will be on the great neighbors, so India and China, in order to save the people being affected. And will they act as Russia has acted in the Donbass and Lugansk, you know, providing people visas and actually allowing these refugees to come into the nations even temporarily? Maybe uh, will they act like Egypt and simply not open up the Gaza Strip borders? And so I guess we'll see a different sort of approach to international relations uh, in, re in regards to refugees very shortly, I think, in the Southeast Asian region. The footage from Myanmar is pretty crazy. It's just like barefoot people in the back of trucks just storm a police station and just shoot like 20 people with AKs. And then they just, you know, hey, you know, waving the guns over their heads, hoist the flag. You know, it's pretty, pretty wild stuff. But at the same time, again, Myanmar holds a lot of relevant uh, shipping lanes, you know, with its international borders. And I think has a lot of important access that these countries in, in the region definitely want to exploit for their own economic purposes. You know, China Belt and Road, I think it's a pretty key aspect of all of that so and again india not so much you know myanmar and pakistan are gonna have to pick up the slack because china's not building any of that belt and road infrastructure through you know that massive subcontinental region that is india you know that is barat or whatever it is they're trying to call it these days but i think in the same token we, we're talking about these regions and separatism and new countries possibly being formed and we see Dodik, we talked about this last week, how he said that Serbska, if it succeeds, they would have 10 to 15 countries recognize it, including members of the European Union. We surmised that was likely Hungary, but the statements have even increased recently, and he said that this will happen before 2030. So Dodik is not confident that Christian Schmidt and the authorities of Bosnia and Herzegovina and the high authority won't start passing anti-Serb, you know, anti-Orthodox type legislation. So he seems pretty confident in secession and breaking away. So maybe not the least likely, you know, of all the bets that we could have placed on this show, I think the death of Bosnia and Herzegovina within within the decade wasn't isn't the least likely. Yeah, that's right. And the, 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 probably the funniest comment was that me and Conrad have been covering the Yugoslavian situation around Kosovo and around Bosnia for a close to about six months now, pretty continuously, and breaking it down quite thoroughly, I think, despite the fact that the mainstream news hasn't really been paying attention to this region. And, given the, and funny enough, Zelensky actually spoke out in a recent interview, or more like a press conference, where he just spits out suddenly that Russia is behind the instability in Yugoslavia, and Russia plans to start a new war in Yugoslavia and break the region up. Something just absurd just spits out like a like a low balls a take, which nobody really asked for. And it seems that you, the discussion Zelensky 
Zelensky was having with his colleagues, and one of which seemed to be a diplomat from an African country, definitely a uh, very dark of skin from the sub-Saharan region. So I'm not quite sure what exactly the press conference was about, but Zelensky starts speaking just uh, off the cuff about how Russia's provoking a Yugoslavian conflict. And it's like, is he saying this because of uh, the recent Tucker Carlson Hungary, President of Hungary interview? Is he saying it's because of Dodik, um, because of the pro-Russian attitudes of the Montenegrin opposition? Maybe the, you know, uh, the fact that Vucic is potentially going to, it's, it's just unknown what Zelensky is thinking. But naturally, Zelensky, just like myself and Conrad, he's paying attention to what's happening in Yugoslavia. So maybe maybe we all should. <laughs> maybe there is something uh, rising up there. But, it, but I would say potentially it's just the Serbian people in general are just tired of being oppressed by Western forces. They're tired of being oppressed by communism, firstly, but they're also tired of being bullied by the you know, the opposition, oppositionary forces of communism, which is the, the liberal New World Order. I think the Serbians just want to live their own, live their own life and live out their civilizational journey, I think, without any further harassment. And naturally, Zelensky doesn't understand. He thinks this is all a Slavophile, some sort of Russophile sentiments. But I think just it's just Serbians trying to be Serbian. And naturally, um, you know, Zelensky not being a Ukrainian nor a Slav himself probably won't, wouldn't really understand. So I think these comments are a little bit uh, funny, given the fact that Dodik, I'm not sure if he's ever said much against Zelensky personally, but Dodik definitely looks like a stronger and more sensible leader than the great Kazarian himself. So some, some promising comments, the fact that, look, hey, it's not just myself and Conrad who keep paying attention to these particular movements over there in the Balkans, but also some of our uh, mainstream enemies as well. Yeah, I mean, I think Zelensky, frankly, looks a lot like Albin Kurti. I don't know if we've pointed this out, but physiognomologically, I think they look very similar. You know, they're very, you know, they're 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 they're, in, they're involved in similar causes. You know, gangster type breakaway. You know, pro post communist states that are being used to persecute and disrupt a orthodox majority, former orthodox majority, depending on where you're talking about. But yeah, I mean, the Dodik situation, we're always following it very closely, and eventually. When it starts to go hot, like we predict that it will, you know, will have already, you'll, you'll have already been briefed by World War Now. You won't need to pay attention to the mainstream media trying to play catch up. But Zelensky in general is floundering, and he's trying to basically look at all these places where Putin and Russia have some influence, you know, because like a superpower, like a rising pair power with the United States, of course, they're involved in international affairs in their, specifically in the Eurasian region, obviously not as far flung as the United States, but he's using this fact to be like, look, at any moment, Russia could start World War III, you know, putting the onus of the World War III that we're in right now on Russia as opposed to, you know, Zog and the global American empire. But he's using this threat, of course, to try to get more aid to Ukraine as the Gaza war usurps him and America continues to pass bills and actually fund the government without funding Zelensky. So he's realizing that, frankly, I think he's just realizing that it's over. Yeah, that's right. From the recent press conference, Zelensky's comments have really shown that he's not really, really willing. And I think he's he's not really willing to step back. And I think he's noticing even how what's happening in Israel at the moment. So Zelensky's main opponents, it, you know, naturally the election is just coming up next year. But Zelensky understands that Ukraine does have some pretty feisty and some quite fiery politicians in charge who may be willing to oust him, especially given that his main sponsor, Kolomoisky, is currently sitting out a prison sentence. So we're not too sure who Zelensky's primary supporters are, besides, you know, internally at least, because the Ukrainian political field is so tumultuous. But naturally, Arostovich, of course, is speaking out very against Zelensky from outside of Ukraine. So we're seeing some pretty strong anti-Zelensky sentiments, similar to how Israel now we're finally seeing anti-Netanyahu sentiments. So naturally, these leaders, similar to how, you know, St. John of Kronstadt said, you know, hell is a democracy and heaven is a kingdom. In a democracy, you do see these princes of hell arguing all the time. 
And so we, we, we are seeing this in the real world as well. Very, very palpable, I would say. And, you know, Zelensky's <coughs> comments at the press conference is just outright stated. We cannot afford any stalemate. If we want to end the war, we must end it. End with respect so that the whole world knows that whoever came, captured and killed is responsible. So he wants to hold Russia responsible for all the d alleged damage it has done over the last over the last year and a half. And naturally, he needs to end it with respect, which means what? Taking Zaporozhye, taking the entirety of Donetsk, it doesn't seem like it's moving that way. We've spoken about Avdiivka for the last few years. Avdiivka will soon fall to the Russian forces. And naturally, what will Zelensky have to answer? And, you know, how will he respond to his American and European sponsors? Like Stoltenberg can say all he wants. And frankly, Stoltenberg's comments like the... Press, the, the chief secretary of NATO, Stoltenberg, has given some pretty, uh, I would say, dramatic inferences. He stated that we are not stopping support for Ukraine. We we are supporting Ukraine until the end. Ukraine needs to be victorious over Russia. So it's just a bit unknown without funding how exactly Ukraine will be victorious, given the probably 600, 700 tanks that have been destroyed since July. Like, exactly where is this conflict going for Zelensky? I think it's going nowhere good. And it's a bit surprising, given that you know he is planning to have an election next year. I think it's a little bit bizarre, given the fact that, well... At least the quarter of Ukraine is currently occupied by Russia. And the question arises, democratically speaking, how are they going to involve all those all of those Ukrainians living in Russian lands to vote? I mean, you're not even going to have a total electorate. And the other question again would be like, are, are the Orthodox Christians who are you currently persecuting, are, are they going to vote for Zelensky? Or are they going to be allowed to vote anyhow, like at all? Again, very um very destructive country and very destructive policies internally, which are causing this turmoil to continue kind of without end. But I think the end is really, really uh, is near Conrad, given the fact that, look, Israel has drained a lot of US attention and resources away from this particular conflict with, with Russia and Ukraine. So I think perhaps we're going to see the end of this particular play uh, playing out in Eastern Europe, finally, or at least very soon, at least perhaps maybe towards the end of summer this year. Well, you bring up Avdivka, and of course, it is clear that it's likely going to fall to the Russians, but that's at no easy cost or any kind of, you know, easy victory for the Russians. We've seen since November 3rd, nearly 1,300 names have been added to the casualty list from the Russian side. This has a rate of about 100 to 110 per day, which is up from the average of 80 over the summer when Russians were, you know, pushing back the Ukrainian counteroffensive from a defensive point of view. And... Avdivka is the main region where these bodies are being seen. I mean, it says that 14 high-ranking officers, lieutenant colonels and above, have been added since that November 3rd update, which is, you know, really high. That's, you know, stuff we had, they hadn't seen since the very beginning of the of the operation beginning in February of 2022. So really intense fighting going on, and this is for the true securing of the entire Donetsk region, which, again, we had hoped would have happened sooner than now for the sake of the people there. But nonetheless, this is intense levels of warfare, and we see that Slowly but surely, I think we're going to start to see some levels of surrendering, and eventually, I mean, it seems that Zeluzhny has already somewhat gone rogue, and there's probably elements of the military that are less willing to negotiate than Zelensky will be, so unfortunately, this thing could get very messy and confusing here at the end of all things, when it all comes tumbling down like it will, but, you know, unless you have anything else to say on the front lines in that regard, we got to talk about the persecutions, which... We know it's going to come crumbling down for Ukraine as they continue this persecution nonsense. And Metropolitan Longin, you know, we've talked a lot about his persecution, you know, them storming his Banchen monastery that he started himself. And now in the midst of all of this, not only has his monastery been stormed, have the, you know, has all of it been looked through, but in the midst of all of this, his lawyers have been poisoned and are dying. Like it's not, it's, you know, it's hard enough to find representation. Everything that I've been able to see, it seems that basically even trying to represent the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Ukraine is basically a crime. Like, they will then find some way to 
rope you in with pro-Russian activity and just make your life hell. And what happened was Valentin Sukar, he died, and, diagnosed, and doctors said that it was a poisoning. And on November 15th, he was buried, so this just happened. And because of this, uh, Metropolitan Longin's trials have been pushed back into December and into January later on. But this is just absurd. I mean, Tucker Carlson is the only journalist in America talking about this, how Christians are being arrested, priests are being arrested, abbots are being arrested during liturgies. And the U.S. wants to keep funding it, and Mike Pence wants to justify it, because they know most Americans don't understand the intricacies of orthodox ecclesiology and autocephaly and what these terms actually mean. So it's so easy to obfuscate, but of course, you know, the Orthodox churches are busy being investigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, so that shows you kind of, you know, who's on what side here. But it really is crazy, you have to pray for the church in Ukraine, and Metropolitan Longin, and all sorts of other bishops that are currently experiencing horrible, horrible hardship at the at the behest of an antichrist government. Yeah, of course, and we're seeing this sort of siege upon monasteries uh, exacerbated even more now. There's the famous Svetogorsk Lavra Monastery, the third largest monastery in all of Ukraine, the one which we can see in the background of our eighth-hour art, actually, the beautiful monastery in the Donetsk region. Just, it's actually just north of Avdeevka, so you can clearly say that, well, you can articulate essentially that as soon as the Russians are done with Avdeevka and they go north, perhaps the um, Svetogorsk Lavra, which is currently under the control of the Ukrainians, will finally be freed and the monks, as well as the Metropolitan there, will be free from persecution. And why I mentioned persecution was because Metropolitan Arsenius, to this point, he's the caretaker of the Lavra Simultel. Metropolitan Longin is the caretaker of the Banshan Monastery. Uh, Metropolitan Arsenius hasn't been harassed too much by the Ukrainian authorities, and his sermons have been qu quite well weighed. He's been you know, spoke, it's been speaking mostly about refugees and helping the innocent civilian people of Ukraine for the most part, which has been doing actually since 2014. But recently, he's been added to the essentially uh, an analogous database of Ukraine, similar to Miratvoritz, which is the famous Ukrainian hit list website. He's been uh, identified by a website called Molthar, and they've stated that Metropolitan Arsenius holds a Russian passport, allegedly. Mind you, he's only living literally an hour away by car from the Russian border, so and he's probably been to Russia many times, so of course he having dual passports and a Ukrainian citizenship really doesn't seem like a problem to us, right? But And especially in Europe, like a country where literally people have multiple passports, there's the EU next door, I think it's quite normal. But naturally, Metropolitan Arsenius is going to be targeted very soon. I feel that he that it has been published on the Ukrainian Orthodox Church's website that potentially he will be harassed very soon by the Ukrainian authorities. So we have to pray for Metropolitan Arsenius in these, I guess, the last hours before the arrival of the Russian forces. And I just want to quote Father Alvian Telidze, who actually is a Russian missionary priest of Georgian origin. You can notice that last name, Telidze. And Father Alvian has been quite popular online recently, like one of these rising stars in the Russian Orthodox Church. He's only he was only born in 1988, so he's quite young in his mid-30s, and he's been quite outspoken about the Ukrainian conflict. And he's actually clearly stated the only way the Ukrainian Orthodox Church gets out of this kind of unscathed and um, you know unharassed, unmolested from you know from this particular issue is if the Russian forces actually move decisively and take certain positions, take control of some of these monasteries, some of these areas adjacent to these church communities and actually protect the Orthodox Christians living in those communities. So he says that, look, we are very dependent on the Russian, on the Russian military at this point. And Father Alvian has pretty strong positions on this. And he's personally friends of a lot of bishops, you know, in the, in the Eastern Ukrainian uh, diocese. So he knows exactly how these you know, how exactly this particular system works where the military cooperates with the clergy very closely and they move into these territories and they don't necessarily harm churches. They don't aim for churches as the Ukrainians claim that, you know, they bombard monasteries. This is simply false and this, it really doesn't take place.
Yeah, I mean, based on every piece of evidence, the Sviatogorsk Monastery shellings used to be really closely covered at the beginning of the conflict when it was hadn't been touched yet. And again, I'm not just saying this to propagandize. It really did seem like every piece of evidence was it was from the Ukrainians. And there was even an arson that happened, which I think obviously occurred at the behest of some crazed, you know, schismatic, which we see the schismatic stuff increasing as well. We see bishops, you know, being pressured and pressured to abandon you know, the canonical church and Metropolitan Onofrius had to act fast and, you know, quickly retire some old bishops that, you know, maybe, maybe you know, have dementia and whatnot are starting to, you know, fall prey to, to nefarious deacons perhaps within their midst and thinking about going into schism because it's just getting so hard, getting oppressed, having to deal with the paperwork of always being persecuted, retaining lawyers despite the fact that, like what just happened to Metropolitan Lunkin, your lawyers are getting poisoned completely. Like, you laugh because there's nothing else you can even say. Like, it's just, it's just ridiculous to even think about this. It's like something out of a poorly written, you know, soap opera. Like, oh, the lawyer's been poisoned. Oh my gosh, you know, like dramatic music plays. But it's, it's real. Like, it's actually happening. So you have to keep the church in Ukraine in your prayers and at the same time, you have to make sure that you don't you don't fall prey to any kind of you know renewed. I don't know what they're going to do to somehow. I don't know if Zelensky will do anything crazy to get you know money back to Ukraine. But you have to remain vigilant on that regard. Just like we talk about Israel possibly perpetrating false flags, the Ukrainians are they're capable. You know they killed people like Daria Dugina. They killed you know others with some sophisticated operations. So we can't put it past them that they may they may try something crazy. And like I said. As factions start to divide under Zelensky, under Zeluzhny, things could start to get really ugly. And this is just a real tragedy to see in an Orthodox nation. We really wish that, we just hope that eventually there can be a fairly dramatic, you know, turnaround from the people there that have been so psyoped that there can perhaps be unity again on the Sea of Azov and on the on the Northern Black Sea, which right now seems extremely far away. But at the same time, we're seeing like flare-ups and conflicts that, you know, are always perennial, but haven't been seen in a long time, like in India and Pakistan. Like, once again, like five border guards dead. We've seen this back and forth on both sides for a long time now in the Kashmir region. And we talk about Arunachal Pradesh and Ladakh and the Himalayan front, because that's you know, very interesting from an infrastructure perspective. But Kashmir is the true kind of center of the religious fight between Pakistan and India. And they, they always go back and forth. And this region is, you know, very evenly split between Hindus and Muslims and you know, it's, again, we talk about why India sides with sides with Israel because Pakistan is one of the biggest supporters of the Palestinians, and they hate Pakistan. So this is just another one of those fronts in World War III that really matters because, again, supposedly, not supposedly, it's openly admitted by both, India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons. And Pakistan even talked about, you know, delivering nuclear weapons to Palestinians. Certain politicians talked about that. So this is, this is obviously an always relevant front that we're going to be watching. And Pakistan... You know, still somewhat corrupt in the sense that they're in their fake government after they overthrew and imprisoned Imran Khan. But I can only imagine how powerful of a force Imran Khan would be right now in the Muslim world if he was still in power in his sort of Trumpian, populist, Islamist sort of way. He would have been a very interesting character to have at this recent IOC meeting. But I don't even know if Pakistani, I don't even know if any Pakistani groups were even represented there. So it's an interesting situation, Pakistan, a very powerful intelligence state. So. I wonder how much they fight against Mossad behind the scenes, or if they're secretly allies and it's all a front. But again, these are all very interesting questions that as Israel gets kind of squeezed and pinched, some of these things might come to the forefront again. But Dimitri, unless you have anything to say about India, Pakistan, 
you know, maybe anything else going on with Avdivka. You know, Zelensky, he talked about the Balkan stuff. You know, we have experts from on the Serbia issue, you know, neocon types saying that Serbia is preparing for war. I think this is probably inspired by Vucic's commitments to never sign a Kosovo recognition despite Kurti and the Albanian rulers in Kosovo seeming to be willing to give Serbian municipalities autonomy. And they're probably inferring that Dodik wouldn't be willing to say all this stuff about Serbska without some tacit support underneath the table from Vucic and the Serbs. So we might be preparing for, you know, in the next five years to see greater Serbia become real. And, you know, maybe the Russians, if they're if they clean up Ukraine and get that set out, they can they can help make that real for the Serbs as well. Yeah, I think it's it's really nice seeing, you know, the, the project of greater Serbia realizing itself at the same time, the reunion and the uh, the reunion of the Serbian and Macedonian churches. Naturally, I would say the Macedonian people would be the fourth, you know, if you count the Russians, the Bulgarians and the Serbians as the three main Orthodox people in the 19th century. Finally, I guess we have a fourth ethnic group becoming, uh, you know, solidly Orthodox, the Macedonians coming into this equation. So out of the 12 or so Slavic nations, now we do have a, a solid 30%, 33% of them actually being orthodox so i'll say the macedonians being included in this large yugoslavian orthodox family is quite strong and i think the serbians have shown that they have diplomatic capacity in order to not allow maybe what transpired in you know in some some of the more negative elements of the 1990s you know things that occurred during in random villages and things that maybe the bosnians keep accusing the serbians of i don't think any future conflict maybe in serbia or in bosnia itself or even you know as we speak about kosovo all the time i don't think these events will probably transpire going into the future i think serbia itself has matured a lot after the throwing off the yoke of communism and the the yoke of the tito the dictatorship of yugoslavia and frankly going forward i think we'll see a very mature very orthodox balkan peninsula kind of rising up to the forefront i think that's kind of unavoidable but speaking of greater serbia right? I think it's worth mentioning. These are probably the two most sensitive issues. And in fact, I almost wanted to avoid speaking about them, but we are World War now. We speak about pretty um, you know, sensitive issues all the time. So I think we kind of have to give credence to them. Uh, the project of Greater Romania and Greater Romania in a church sense. So the R Romania has been expanding very rapidly into Bessarabia, which is Moldova, quite actively. And of course, Romania believes that the Moldovan Autonomous Orthodox Church, which is currently under Russia and Moscow, belongs to it. So territorially speaking, Romania has this understanding that Moldova and Moldovan diocese, Moldovan priests should be under the Romanian Patriarchate. And so they're expanding actively into Moldova. And what we're seeing is um, the Russian church, or at least the, the I mean, these are not even ethnically Russians. They're ethnically Moldovan priests and clergymen who have allegiance to Moscow, to Patriarch Kirill, because for 200 years, the Russian church has had presence in this Bessarabian land. In fact, even pr prior to the uni unification of Romania as a country. So the Metropolitan Markel of Belsk and Fefeleshtk, which is the Moldovan Orthodox Church member, he actually made a very strong uh, statement in a like, 22-minute interview where he, in Russian with a very strong Moldovan accent, essentially spoke out against the Romanian church and said that any priests from his diocese or any of the Moldovan diocese that will be going over to the Romanian church without, of course, permission from their from from the bishops from the synod of Moldova will be excommunicated and will be losing all their grace. It's a very strong statement. He says that we will not be promoting any schism with Romania, but if the Romanians keep pushing into Moldova, we have to understand that you cannot go to any Romanian churches in our land. These churches have no grace, do not commune there, do not have confession. Very like powerful theological statement here. I mean, these powerful theological subjects, they don't come up all the time. You don't have local jurisdictional churches making these strong statements like, hey, this is our church neighbor who we have a disagreement with, they have no grace. But here we have Bishop Mimich Bolton and Markel actually directly stating that if you go to a Romanian church in Moldova, you're not, you know, you're excommunicating yourself essentially. So 
quite powerful. And I think, well, I'm just going to make this prediction. And I think the Romanian church is not going to slow down. It will continue to expand into Moldova. It's not listening to the Moldovan authorities. And they are even advertising on their Bessarabian Metropolia website that, look, if you're a Moldovan priest or a Moldovan member of the Orthodox Church, you can always come over into the Romanian church. We're welcoming you with open arms. Our priests have salaries similar to the Greeks and Goach, for example, whereas the Moldovan priests are quite poor. They don't get, uh, as you know, the Romanian church is backed up by the state and the state is funded by both NATO and the EU. So... The Romanian church at the moment, despite being very orthodox and their society being very Christian, on per capita, it is one of the most orthodox countries on earth. It is still seeking this project of expanding itself back to its, I guess you can say, ancestral lands in the northeast. And I think this will cause a, a rift. And you know, this is why I didn't want to speak about the subject, because sometimes you don't want to be the harbinger of bad news. But looking at all these interviews of Moldovan bishops and even members of the Russian church react, I think we may be seeing, Conrad, a move that the Russian church will eventually, even for a short time, perhaps will break communion with the Romanian church over this particular issue in Moldova. Because, well, both sides don't see eye to eye, and it seems that both sides want control over this particular jurisdiction. And in fact, it is canonically speaking, quite illegal to move into the jurisdiction of another church unprompted without any clarification because the Moldovans, the Moldovan Orthodox people are quite meek. They're quite humble. They don't raise any sort of heresies, any schisms. In fact, they don't even uh, commune with schismatics of any sort. Yes, they do have like local old calendarists, but you don't have any really issues coming out of that region. And so it's a little bit surprising, but I think an unavoidable uh, finale to this particular story that we will be seeing a breach of communion, I think, in the near future, unfortunately. We hate to see that, of course. And we, we see this could you know what the Transnistria question politically comes to the comes to mind. I guess when you think of all this as well, and how much like the Russian military is inadvertently involved in the schism in Ukraine, perhaps the Russian military may find itself involved in dealing some of these schism issues even farther west. But in the same vein as churches, you know, somewhat being involved in the milieu of Western influence of NATO and whatnot in the European Union. Unfortunately, we saw a recent letter from Patriarch Ilya where he basically says that. Therefore, we always supported European integration in regards to uh, some of the steps that Georgia needs to be taking to grant be granted uh, candidate membership status to the EU. And, you know, again, we've talked about this before. I think Dimitri has some thoughts on why this probably isn't actually Patriarch Ilya writing this. He's very, very old, you know, in his mid-90s, and he you know, perhaps has some, he's in Tbilisi, perhaps there are some around him that are more interested in European integration than some of the more you know, orthodox bishops, you could say, out in the hinterlands. But part of this EU integration would involve supporting legislation like the anti-discrimination legislation from 2014 that led to some of the, that was the beginning of when we saw so many of these huge anti-pride, anti-homosexual, anti-sodomy rallies in Georgia. And Patriarch Ilya said at the time that this bill would mark the recognition of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and its propaganda at the legislative level. And then in 2020, Metropolitan Anthony Avani in Baghdati, he warned that the country needs to seriously rethink its pro-Western orientation, saying the U.S. and various EU states actively fund institution, institutions that sow hatred against the Orthodox Church and promote the LGBT agenda. So with the spirit of the Orthodox Church in Georgia, the spirit of the people of Georgia, want nothing to do with this. And of course, I can't think of anything besides, you know, latent Russophobia that would actually want, that would actually lead to one having a strong opinion towards joining the European Union. Yeah, these recent unfortunate developments in Georgia, similar to those in Moldova and Romania, they do raise the question as to who's exactly in charge, who's writing these letters. I doubt 
the 93, 94-year-old patriarch Ilya of Georgia actually published this letter himself, wrote it with his own hand, and even signed it. I feel like that most likely was a facsimile of sorts, like an auto-generated signature online who one of his secretaries, perhaps a priest or a deacon, simply stamped this letter with and actually released it in support of the Georgian parliament. Some of these EU uh, envoys essentially arriving from the European Union on the 8th of November this year and actually presenting it to Georgia and saying, look, if you guys want integration of the European Commission and the European Union, you will need to take these certain steps in order to become more European. And like geographically speaking, Conrad, like Georgia is not Europe in any sense of the word. Like, I mean, if Georgia is Europe, that means Armenia and Azerbaijan are Europe as well. But, but that's just bizarre. Not every country which is Christian needs to be necessarily European. I mean, Antiochians are not European, for example. Uh, the uh, Egyptian Copts are not European, even those belonging to the Alexandrian Orthodox Church. But this idea that Christianity is only European is essentially, uh, I mean, it's, if anything, it's somewhat uh, somewhat heretical, I would say. It's some sort of ethnophilitism arising here. I would say Georgia is, is nothing akin to Europe. I mean, they have different DNA, different culture. Georgia has a very unique Indo-European heritage and even, a, I would say, Caucasian heritage, which goes back even even before Europe was Christianized properly. So I think throwing that away is really offensive. And naturally, this letter, I don't believe, belongs to Patriarch Ilya in any sense. I don't believe he wrote it because, again, what does this mean to support European integration? And just the wording of it, it says, therefore, we always supported European integration and we hope our country will make a valuable contribution to the further progress of this great European family. I mean, what are European values these days, right? It's not, it's certainly not Christianity. It's more like liberal values, free trade, and liberal values, of course, entail being, you know, cooperating on the. Well, it's abortion uh, and euthanasia, right? I mean, we saw that story. The Belarus, the Belarusian government is going to put to death this guy that, like, beat his son to death, and they're putting the wife in jail for 25 years because she helped. And all these European institutions are like, this is barbarism. These are not European values. It's like, you support, like, abortion and euthanasia, and you're going to condemn Belarus for putting, like, a child murderer to death? Like, completely out of whack and i hope the people of georgia recognize that as well and i think they do for the most part which is the positive and like a really conservative georgian politician who has very broad outreach online especially in the russian internet as well as georgian he's very pro-russian georgian and he actually believes georgia and russia need to be united in this civilizational orthodox war which is to come in the future levan perveli he actually i'm directly quoting him he says what christian values is the church hierarchy in georgia talking about we are heading headfirst into the grand orient he's speaking about the masonic lodge of france of course but which is naturally part of this new european like a, this cohort of european values which we spoke about last week macron giving the speech at the masonic lodge in, in paris like this is that's part of that equation as well. And I don't think the Georgian people need that. I don't think Patriarch Ilya wrote this letter. And I think naturally any sort of Russophobic attitudes really cannot prompt the, sending your entire country into the uh, into the tumultuous hell. We see Greece, Romania, and even uh, Kosovo actually finding themselves in at the moment. I think that's a huge loss and probably the worst idea you could generally have as members of the Georgian public. I think definitely people need to rethink some of the attitudes and those within the church who are publishing these destructive letters, um, you know, misinforming the patriarch and things like that. That's just a huge sin. I mean, your patriarch has been serving the Georgian church for 45 years as patriarch since 1978, I believe. So it's a, at least the oldest reigning patriarch at the moment. And in fact, I don't think in world history we've had a patriarch who's held the seat of a, any patriarchy for 45 years straight. I think it's unprecedented. The man could be called almost a living saint in the church. And in fact, kind of, uh, you know, spreading fake news about him allegedly claiming that these are his words i think that's just the dire sin and these people need to repent speaking of examples for them to look towards all they have to do is look at latvia which just uh, legalized you know same-sex unions civil unions whatever you call them and this is 
you know, a country that's often claimed as a bastion of, you know, right-wing conservatism in Eastern Europe. But in July, they elected, you know, a homosexual prime minister, and now they have legalized, you know, the sodomy union. And this is, I mean, look, this is your brain on non-orthodoxy. You know, these these Baltic regions were the last to convert to Christianity, you know, and they have held out with this extreme Russophobia as well, quickly joined the EU, quickly joined NATO. And, you know, these countries are now falling quickly to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I don't think most Latvian people have any interest in seeing this type of sodomy stuff recognized, but that's the price of selling your soul out to out to Zog. I mean, this is this is what we're going to see. And again, I think enough Georgians recognize this, that if this starts to really get on the ground, they're going to take to the streets like they always do. But I think we're getting close to wrapping up here, Dimitri, unless you have anything else to say kind of in the whole broad spectrum. Of course, we've seen the January 6th footage finally released. I'm going to be combing through that on Twitter, so be sure to follow us, World War Now underscore on Twitter and World War Now Telly to see some stuff about that. But do you have anything you want to leave us with, Dimitri? Yeah, I think just on a more positive note, because we have spoken about the pro, uh, the pro-life movement and essentially it's progress in, in Russia necessarily, but three Russian regions, Tver, Kaliningrad, which is the former Prussian Konigsberg, right next to Latvia, you know, kind of hoisted in you know, amidst amidst these uh, negative NATO countries surrounding it, and Mordo- Mordovia as well, have uh, proposed fines which will come into effect very soon, essentially for anybody promoting abortions, whether it's whether it's online, in private text chats, uh, over the phone, anybody promoting or prompting abortion can receive a fine of up to 500 American dollars, uh, and this is usually done in a very small court as well, so pretty easily identifiable, and of course this will be on these people's criminal record as well, so essentially it's not a felony, but naturally these moves in the, in these I guess you could say pretty uh, important Russian regions. Tver is just north of Moscow. Kaliningrad is Russia's westernmost region, very patriotic. And Mardovia, I guess, does represent some of Russia's uh, multitudes of minorities, naturally, some uh, Mardvina and people like that. So I think it's a representation that Russia is moving after Crimea, after Metropolitan Tikhon's uh, initiative, these Russian regions. And, you know, Kadyrov as well, funny enough, they're moving towards the banning of this sacrifice of babies and the murder of babies, you know, not following in the footsteps of Netanyahu and actually addressing some of these issues at home. I think it's very powerful. And, you know, Patriarch Kirill's statement on the 12th of November when he says, look, we need more people. This is an obvious fact. Everyone recognizes this, politicians, sociologists, but in order for us to do so, we must all work hard to ensure that the population increases. And the population can increase if there is a simple, as a simple movement of a magic wand. If we solve this problem of abortion and we dissuade women from having abortions, the population statistics will go up. So Patriarch Kirill directly saying that, look, if you want to be a Russian patriot, if you want to support the sort of revitalization of the Russian nation, we have to move towards dissuading women and men from you know, promoting abortion in society. So Patriarch Kirill, again, supporting the sentiment from the highest church position, and we're getting these positive news rising from Russia, which is, uh, again, rejuvenating itself and restoring itself amidst war and the world the world hegemon tyranny pushing down upon it. I think it's uh, quite positive, and it's good to end on a positive note you know, regarding some of these Orthodox countries actually improving themselves. No, amen. I think the abortion battle in Russia is getting very hot very fast, and we're seeing a lot of victories. They didn't expect it to happen this quickly, but I think it's very encouraging to see. And despite you know some of the setbacks in America, America's also many states are experiencing a revival like that as well. So wherever you are, America, Russia, Europe, South America, Africa, pray for an end to abortion wherever you live. But I think with all of that, I think we're about to wrap this up. Again, like I said, worldwarnow.substack.com. Follow us there. Check out our latest Ether Hour episode, one of our spiciest yet, maybe our spiciest yet. Really, really good stuff. Get behind that paywall. It helps this show stay going. It helps us bring you this fantastic content research that people tell us there's nobody else putting content out like this. And we like to agree. We like to think we're 
keeping it fresh and bringing a new perspective and you know keeping it civilizational like we do here on wwn so world war now substack.com for everything world war now underscore follow us on twitter world war now telly that's our telegram we've gotten over 2,000 followers and the engagement keeps going up we have a comment section there that's great so don't be afraid to check that out follow me on twitter at gnomerad follow dimitri at ocanonist follow us on youtube subscribe put that bell you know get the notifications we'll, we'll post clips we go live sometimes so hopefully we'll be doing some more of that in the near future Follow us on Rumble as well. The the backload upload is taking a bit of time, but follow us there. It's a good bulwark to have against any form of censorship. So with all that being said, Dimitri, send us off. Thank you guys for listening, and thank you to all the supporters. We've received so many comments. I think this has been, like, this last fortnight has been the most active on Substack. We've received feedback, what people want to hear, what people want to see us write about, ask the questions that I mean, have been... You know, we tried to answer, I think, most questions given to us, myself and Conrad, actively. But yes, if you guys have any feedback, feel free to send it through in our Twitter DMs on Substack. We do respond quite actively, so I think that's probably a quite a good thing. And again, YouTube comments as well are almost welcome and always welcome. I think if any priests or clergymen listening to us at the moment, keep us in our prayers, myself and Conrad, because we are experiencing, again, not just censorship, but also a lot of uh, a lot of negativity, I suppose, from the pro-Ukrainian, uh, I would say, degenerate satanic crowd online. People are, you know, th- these people are performing dark magic. So me and Conrad, we are actually having to stay, I guess, you can say spiritually fit somewhat. You know, we have to fast, we have to pray in order to keep ourselves safe and also keep an active spiritual life. So if any of... Uh, um, fathers of the church are listening again keep us in your prayers if you may it's the, it's the least i suppose you could do for us because again um we are it is a spiritual war as well as an it's not just an info war online like you know alex jones promotes i think it's spiritual war at the end of the day and one of the only ways to, that you can take out people who speak out in favor of the church would be through through some spiritual negativity which can be directed towards us so we do have to stay spiritually i guess tense and uh prayerful i think uh, your support goes a long way so thank you everyone for your thoughts and your support, I think, um, yeah, we're definitely rising to the top of the news and we're going to be staying there for a little while. Hey, Conrad. Indeed. So thanks so much for listening and uh, God bless.